0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.tv, University of California television. Like what you learn, help others discover UCTV
1: podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes.: So um, let me talk to you about Migorda first, okay? This is, this is my wife. This is Andrea. Uh, tomorrow we're celebrating our 33rd anniversary. So. And Andrea is my rock, and has been my rock for all those years. Uh, But if you ask all our kids, four of them are here today, they will probably tell you that she is the rock of our family, and she's at the center of uh, everything that happens. And uh, I just saw um, a quote that I think applies uh, tremendously well to her, for me and our relationship. And she is my best friend. And it said, this quote said that um, you have the, uh, the uh, sensibility to catch that first year, um the, the, the strength um, to see and catch the second one, and the courage to stop the third one. And that is you. So thank you. Um, we have a wonderful family. These are our kids. And, um, and really, we have been very, very uh, lucky, no pun intended, um, <laughs> um, with uh, what um, we experienced. We came to this country um, about 32 years ago, and um, we are both from Argentina, and uh, we grew up there. Uh, I went to school in the University of Buenos Aires. I'll, I'll show you some of the uh, specific um, um, things and experiences that I had. Um, but sir the... By far, this is the the best, the uh, most amazing fortune that we have as parents. And um, and our family started growing again. Um, This is our first wedding that took place in 2014, our oldest son and his uh, wife, Christy. Um, And this is our second wedding that we just celebrated this past (laughs) September. Uh, You would think that they're kind of like the same picture, but they're not. (laughs) LAUGHTER a few more people there, um, and uh, this is Victoria's and Adam's uh, wedding that uh, they are both here tonight, so um, we're very happy. Um, and um, right as we were celebrating this wedding, uh, our third uh, child, uh, son, who is on the right here with the beard, and his fiancé announced at the time that they were going to get married this September, so we are going to be celebrating the third one. The other two, let's wait a little bit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think we have some time. <laughs> well, so, um, so I, I was very fortunate because I started as a finance guy. And, um, and at the time, um, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do, but it, it became very obvious very quickly that I wanted to be in senior management and do strategy and someday run a company. And, um, and I had to work very long days to really get to that position. And um, so I could say today that I'm, I'm living my dream. I have the best job. I have an amazing opportunity. I am uh, proud of the company. I'm proud of what we're doing. And uh, and it really, it took all those years to really be prepared for that. And uh, uh, I had an opportunity to work in retail at the very beginning of my career, and, uh, and retail, being a finance guy, was a great match because, um, you know, the, the, having the opportunity to understand financial matters and and then seeing how a retail organization would run where you make decisions every single day that can have a significant impact on um, the performance of the company, it was just an incredible um, opportunity for me to grow and and fulfill that dream that I was talking about. Uh, so I, I worked for um, most of those companies at retailers other than Coopers that I left um, um, in uh, to 1987. And, uh, and I was able to really grow through um, the different um, areas within retail, starting with finance, but then I went into the more operating areas. And um, most recently, as co-CEO of uh, Restoration Hardware, where uh, I had an opportunity to really see uh, the company from the, the very strategic points of, uh, of management. Um, in uh, 2013, at the end of 2013, I got a call from a private equity firm, Leonard Green, we are, who are very, very uh, experienced in, in the retail world. And they said, You know, um, we have an opportunity to buy Lucky Brand. If you want to come and run it, we will buy it for you. And I said, Excuse me? <laughs> and, um, and, the, uh, and the opportunity was very serious, and I was uh, very excited. We were having uh, great business in, in Restoration Hardware. We had done a lot of great things, and the company continues to thrive and do very well. But, um, but it was also an opportunity for us to uh, go back to Los Angeles, which was a, a city that we call home and that we love. And Andrea definitely wanted uh, to go back. Uh, so there was a, a big personal reason um, in addition to fulfilling my dream because, you know, at Prestoration, I was co-CEO. In this case, I can be uh, the CEO of the company and, and more than anything, you know, have the opportunity to instill my values and, uh, and really be completely um, authentic with who I am and what I think the culture of the company uh, needs to be. And, uh, and I'm very happy that I made that decision and never looked back once. Um, we um, they, uh, mentioned uh, we were um, that we have been here for almost uh, 33 years, and, and I, I would be. Uh, it's it's very important that I talk about how grateful we are to this country because uh, we came here with just our uh, suitcases. No, only one. <laughs> so suitcase. All right, um, and, um, and really, uh, everything we did here, uh, you know, has been, you know, just a, it took a lot of effort, but we were so so, um, you know, fortunate to really have those efforts being rewarded significantly, and uh, and uh, we are completely grateful to this country, and I hope that every American feels that way because uh, really, um, what we have here is uh, pretty extraordinary. Um, I have two hobbies. One is my family, and the other one is work. all right so now um, we 're going to talk about the power, and we call this this idea the power of strategy in brand transformation and design and so i 'm going to address the the side of uh, the, the side of strategy and and then uh, Ken is going to uh, talk about design, but uh, you know just we, we try to really instill a spirit of humor and uh, good health in the company and, um, and I would like. Um, you know, to share with you uh, a little exercise here, and, uh, and, and hopefully this will impact your lives as um, it has impacted my life. And, and this is uh, something called laughter yoga. And I don't know if you are familiar with laughter yoga, but, you know, I'm gonna, you know, we were in a meeting, and, and this, uh, we participated in this exercise. It really changed the turn of events uh, during that meeting. So I'm a firm believer of this, and this is uh, what it is. Um, the, uh, some doctor in India um, in the 90s discovered that um, you know if, if when we laugh, uh, human beings, when we laugh, uh, there is a, a, a flow of, of, of blood that is significantly superior to the normal flow. So. Um, and, and the body starts releasing some chemicals and positive neurotransmitters that really make us feel significantly better, and we are uh, just much more engaged, and uh, the, our energy goes up. And uh, this happens in a very, you know, within 45 seconds to a minute. You know, the, the body starts releasing this, and, and in about two minutes, you are in kind of like full force. Now, this is the catch. The body cannot discern whether you are laughing for a good reason or if it's just a fake laugh. All right? So, but the impact is still the same. So, I'm going to ask you to really exercise with me and see if this is, uh, you know, it's going to work. Uh, and there are two things that we have to do one is breathe, which I'm sure everybody can handle here. And the second thing is laugh, okay? So, and you don't have to laugh for any particular reason at all, but you have to laugh. So I'm going to ask all of you to really stand up, okay? This is not going to take long, all right? So, and I'm going to lead you, okay? So now we're, we're going to raise our arms, <laughs> breathe deep, and then go... <sighs> All right, that was good. That was good. Now the next time we're gonna laugh when we release our our oxygen. All right, ready? <laughs> all right, that was good, but I couldn't hear well. All right, so what we're gonna do now is something called cell phone laugh, and the idea is that you have to imagine that you're listening to this best joke ever. All right, and we're gonna laugh like. <laughs> Come on. (laughs) Good. All right. And the last thing that we're going to do is we're going to do the laughter handshake. You're going to shake your hand with somebody, and you're going to (laughs) laugh. All right. All right. Well, thank you very much. Now you can sit. All right, so you can, you can claim that you went to the gym today, you did something good. Um, you know, it's kind of interesting, i, I uh just researching this thing. Um, you know, as kids, we laugh 300 times a day, and as adults, it's only 30 times. Um, and this is really very healthy, so anyways, I hope that you, um, you get into this. All right, so um, I'm going to try to move us quickly so then we leave uh, enough time for uh, questions uh, later on. Um, we bought the company in 2014, and, uh, and the company had been founded, um, like uh, Raul said, in 1990 by two entrepreneurs very, very engaged in uh, uh, the, the whole denim business, and, and it was originally a denim brand. And then they were very successful. Uh, The the brand took off. Sales really grew very quickly. And then at some point, they were looking for a liquidity event. So they decided to sell the company to Liz Claiborne at the time. And Liz Claiborne started growing this company in a very, very um, uh, fast, extremely fast way. And the business really derailed during those years. And the brand lost relevance. Uh, So when we took over, that was part of the... Of the challenge, you know, how do we regain the relevance that the brand had had at some point? Uh, the business was well distributed. Uh, we had, um, you know, a, a presence in department stores like Macy's, Nordstrom, and so forth. And we had uh, significant um, uh, stores in both retail malls and also outlet malls. Um, and we had a small but meaningful licensing business. And, um, and the company was doing okay, but ma- making very little money relative to the size of the business. So um, the first thing that we did in 2014 uh, was to learn. And we tried to learn about the customer. We tried to learn about the brand, the real estate, how um, the company was positioned relative to com- the competition, um, and our team, our people. Uh, And uh, and we were able to really draw very significant conclusions as to what we needed to do to really move uh, the brand forward. Uh, Then uh, we put together a strategy, a plan, and I'm going to share some of those key initiatives um, with you. Uh, But then we used 2015 to be more a year of validation, where we were trying to validate all those key initiatives and that all those assumptions that were going to work. Then in 2016. Things got significantly challenging towards the end of 2015, and we, uh, we, we thought that we had to really refocus the business as uh, the changes in, in retail were so transformative and so challenging to the traditional model that the company had always had. Um, and then um, this year, um, we are calling this year the year of brand transformation because we think that Uh, the business has to be transformed for everybody who is in this space, and uh, and that is what we are trying to do. And I'll share with you some of those uh, changes. I I mentioned that we are um, in many different uh, points of distribution. Uh, We are very happy with that, with the distribution that we have. Um, We have uh, a business that last year produced uh, slightly over $600 million in in revenues, Uh, but if you... Uh, uh, translate all those dollars into uh, what the consumer is paying at the point of sale, that number is about $1.2 billion because we have a very sizable uh, licensing business, and the only thing that we recognize as revenues is uh, the royalties that our licensees pay us for the sales that they generate. Um, We are very happy with uh, how balanced the portfolio is. You can see uh, that uh, the wholesale business represents about 37% of of the total revenue base. Uh, And the retail business, this is the full-price stores, uh, which are about 173 stores. We are just closing a couple now. Uh, But that represents almost a third of the total business. So we like the fact that we have this uh, uh, fluidity in terms of how the product is being distributed. And we see opportunities to continue to really um, take advantage of that. One of the Numbers that, that don't seem that big over there is the e-commerce biz, uh, business, which represents 11% of the total business. But if you relate that number to the uh, the product that is uh, sold uh, through other channels, like uh, the full-price retail stores, our penetration is is pretty significant at about 28%. Um, that, of course, it's it's uh, about. Uh, uh, almost as high as the the best uh, in class, you know, which uh, probably would be Urban Outfitters with a 29 or maybe 32 percent this year. Um, the brand is always founded on these four pillars, and we love this. Uh, Ken is going to talk more about it, but you know, the four pillars are music, rock and roll, Southern California lifestyle, um, moto, and vintage Americana, and this have been there from the beginning, from the founding of uh, of the company. And uh, what we love about this is that this is not a story that we are making up. It's true. It's authentic. It's, it's, uh, it has tremendous integrity. And it continues to be very relevant today. And it's relevant across generations. So my, I love vintage. Our kids love vintage. Um, uh, it's also uh, something that is very relevant across cultures. So you go, you know, we love moto uh, here in America. The same thing happens in South America. If you go to Europe, uh, the same thing is true. So, so we believe that these uh, th- kind of uh, pillars are a, a key ingredient to be able to make this brand someday a big, powerful global brand. The brand has a pretty significant uh, awareness level among consumers. If you look at women, that number is at 77%. If you look at men, that number is at 58%. And the great thing is that when you think about the size of our business, the brand awareness level is significantly higher, which implies that at some point, you know, we could be a much larger company. No, if you look at uh, to the left of those uh, charts, um, the, um, in, in both cases, the companies that have that kind of numbers in terms of brand awareness are multibillion dollars companies, so that is a, a pretty exciting opportunity for us. Uh, we love our customers. Uh, we have a customer that's very affluent. Uh, they are older than what you would think for a denim brand, but you know, 35 and older represents about 80% of our customer base. Um, these are people that are highly employed. They are very active and they live very active lifestyles, which is a very important part of our uh, thesis in terms of how we think that we can grow the business. Um, and these are people that are um, uh, making enough money and have enough disposable income to be able to really buy more, much more product from uh, the company. So um, we like the price positioning of the brand. You know, here we did this just for denim, but you can see that we are in that Price between 99 and $149 for a pair of, of jeans. Uh, we like the fact that we are not at an entry price point like uh, you would look there for Levi's and Gap um, because it's very difficult to produce the kind of quality that we want to um, represent uh, through our brand. Uh, but at the same time, we are not as expensive as many of the premium brands where, um, you know, the, the, if you want to buy a pair of jeans, you have to pay about $200. We think that we can produce and, and offer the customers a similar type of product with a similar type of quality uh, at a price that is um, uh, significantly less. Um, so the approach that we took uh, for the brand transformation, everything we did, you know, we just kind of grounded our analysis and our learnings on the brand. So you can, I, I don't think that if you're thinking about transforming any brand, uh, that you can forget about what you know about the brand and staying true to that brand. Uh, so we started with the customer, and uh, we learned about the customer, and we took those learnings and evolved the product accordingly. Um, uh, after that, we said, Well, now we have a, a, a great product assortment, or we are on our way. Uh, we need to really reconceptualize um, our, the, the store environment. How is that we are going to offer and present the, uh, the product? And then we said, Well, how, now that we have that, how are we going to tell this story? So, marketing became a pretty significant part of the strategy. And last but not least, the customer omni channel experience had to be reviewed and reconceptualized as well. Um, so, we started with the customer, and the first thing we did was this customer research. We asked the customer a very simple question When you buy Lucky Brand product, do you wear that product for weekends? And sure enough, you know, 85% of both men and women said, oh, yeah, absolutely. When I buy the product, that's where, where, where I use it, where I wear it. But then we asked the question, well, how about going to work? How about go on, on, uh, going out? And the numbers came down significantly. Well, that was not a big surprise because most of our uh, apparel and uh, ready-to-wear was, was very casual. But then we asked the question, well, what if we made more product under Lucky Brand?" for other occasions, like going out, like going to work? And, um, and two things were pretty in important in the answers. The first one was that when we asked about weekends, the numbers didn't go up. So we said, okay, we'll make more product for you. Would you, like more, would you buy more product from Lucky for weekends? And the answer was, no, 85% is kind of it. We are buying enough from, for that particular occasion. But the numbers for going out, going to work went up significantly especially with women so we thought okay here we have a customer that is highly employed very active so they were participating in those other occasions for sure and they had the the affluence to be able to really pay for additional product and for sure they were spending money with other retailers or other brands for those other occasions. So we felt, in this case, we have the, that engagement and that loyalty from the customers. Why wouldn't we go and really develop a product line that really reflects and, and satisfies those new occasions? Uh, so we created the strategy. At, at the center, in this box, is the core business. And then we said, OK, what if we expand our wearing occasions and we offer things for other uh, types of use? And we increased the breadth and the depth to dominate existing categories. Up until that point, the company was, uh, if if we made dresses, we would have probably a couple of dresses. It was never, uh, you know, a situation where the customer would really think of us as a dominant uh, in that particular product category. And we said, you know, if we're going to be in a business, let's make sure that we can dominate. Introducing new categories to really complete the lifestyle of that customer. And then develop a product that has broad appeal and versatility. You know, we we saw that we were almost too specific in uh, the taste levels that that we were following. Um, So our lifestyle, you know, we defined it as. We started with what we were doing and where we have capabilities internally. So this circle represents that. You know, we do and we design and manufacture denim. We do uh, the same for women's fashion, men's fashion, and we have some lines in uh, accessories like jewelry that we do internally. But then we said, how do we complete the lifestyle of this customer. How do we make sure that we really offer uh, and we put together a line of product that really can complete that lifestyle? So we went after licensing businesses. We're trying to find partners that were experts in certain product categories. So we have done quite a bit. This is women's shoes. Uh, You can see these are all licenses that we just put together um, during the last uh, three years. Um, And the last one is uh, some that uh, we are partnering with Macy's and Macy's is uh, developing a line for home. We're starting with bedding. Uh, But, you know, they they have committed space. They are doing the whole design and development. But our design team is completely integrated in that whole process and um, making um, sure that the line represents the brand in the way that it would if we were developing the, the product ourselves. Uh, another one that is super exciting and it's very new is watches. Uh, we are going to have our own line of watches. And, uh, and we think that this is pretty tremendous because um, the business model is superior. We have no, no, no um, capital invested in, in inventories other than when we buy inventories to sell in our own stores or in our own channels or in e-commerce. Uh, but, you know, the, uh, all these licensees, are in charge of developing and manufacturing and distributing the product for the most part. So we are very excited about that. Um, At the time, you know, this was great as a a corporate type of uh, bookcase, right? But we said, okay, how do we make sure that the design team, that the merchants, that everybody who touches product can understand what we are trying to accomplish? You know, just you go to to those charts, right, the, uh, you know, the box and this and that. Oh, this is, you want more inventory here and more product there. But how do we make that much more tangible? So um, I asked Ken to really put this into visuals, and, and she's amazing at this, uh, as one of many things. Um, and what she did was she created an imaginary customer family that really was going to wear uh, all these you know, different uh, products from Lucky for the different occasions or different um, uh, activities that they will uh, participate in, in the house. So this is the family. It's, um, it's, uh, the Lucky woman is a 36-year-old restaurateur. They, lo- they love to entertain. He is a-, a business tech analyst, and they have two kids. They have a dog, and they live in that house. Okay, <laughs> And then she went from occasion to occasion, so everyday casual for her, and, and what would she wear for those particular occasions, and this is all product that is not necessarily lucky product, but she was able to really represent what lucky product would look for those particular occasions, and she did it for the different areas for men, and uh, weekend getaway, and lazy weekend, and uh, working out, and all the different occasions, so you get uh, exactly how we pre, um, uh, put this together. And we went with this and really presented this to the entire design team and also our licensee partners. So here you have, you know, what would be the vision for, for, be- for uh, bedding or, or home, you know, and we are using a lot of the prints that we are using for um, apparel as well. Or what we would do with uh, furniture if at some point we had some, some of this. And, you know, leather is such a key um material that we use in our own apparel so you know just it was very easy to see how the product would evolve to really represent the brand with entirely uh, so what do we win we came up with this you know the on the left is what we inherited on the le- on the right is where we're going and basically what we're saying is is this is gonna be a full lifestyle brand that really caters to that consumer for multiple occasions. Uh, we want to use our stores more as showrooms. We have very small stores, but if we continue to expand um, the product assortment, we're going to have a challenge to be able to display all those additional products, but we think that we can use uh, the, the stores and bridge that gap with iPads in stores, which uh, we have provided um, we want to be intercepting the customer with marketing techniques um, and um, you know, relying more on digital and expanding the footprint uh, to capture um, the, uh, an international marketplace. So that's our plan. Now, um, unfortunately, things didn't go as planned for most retailers in, in our space, and, and we are being affected by change as well. So there's... The, a quote from Charles Darwin that says, the species that is the most adaptable to change is the one that survives. It's not the the strongest nor the most intelligent. And I feel that this is very applicable to what's happening in, in retail today. And we are very excited to be one that really not only embraces change but celebrates it. We think that there is a big opportunity uh, for us to really capitalize on all the things that have been changing, and and the changes are pretty transformative and very disruptive. So you know, I listed a few here: uh, square footage overgrowth in retail. I think that we have uh, a ratio of square footage per capita that is about seven times what you find in Europe or even Asia. I mean, seven times. There is so much overgrowth. Um, the second big thing, the internet revolution and what's happening there and how that is impacting the way the, the customer shops today. Uh, incredible. Um, Amazon is such a powerful mover and, uh, and, and a big, big disruptor. Uh, the continued uh, customer traffic declines. And, you know, it's just very difficult to make up for those numbers if you lose revenues in, in the malls. Uh, that is uh, for most of us, all of us. Um, that is a a fixed cost structure. So if you lose revenue, that means that you're going to make less money. Even if you are able to transfer some of those sales into the e-commerce business, it it will never be uh, sufficient. And and the e-commerce business also carries a variable expense structure. So if you have more sales here, that means that you also have to pay for those sales um, in, in that business model. Uh, fast fashion. Fast fashion has had a major impact in in our industry, and um, and we think that that is continues to be a superior model. So we are trying to really adjust what we do internally uh, to compete with them more more effectively. Uh, new marketing models and the the impact of digital and um, and the millennial generation, which is you know m- most of you here. Um, this is uh, something that really uh, is impacting the, the way people shop. And, uh, and we want to learn, and we want to be able to really become a great, a great brand for, for the millennial generation. You know, Last year, the millennials became a larger generation than mine, the baby boomers. And I think that the, the one that comes next, which I think is Generation Z, um, is um, is expected to be even bigger. So we know that if we don't connect with that customer um, or anybody who is in this space that doesn't, uh, we'll have a very tough time. Um, there are some things that didn't change for, for, for the worse, and uh, and we are very happy with this. People still wear clothes. All right? That's, that's a good thing. Um, and if you look at these numbers, you know, just... Uh, uh, this compares uh, total sales in retail in the U.S. from, to, um, it, uh, from 2010 to 2015. And uh, there has been a pretty meaningful growth and, and a significant one. We are a small company, so we believe that we could really uh, take market share and continue to grow, uh, especially when the the overall demand is so healthy in, in the country. Uh, now, of course, you can see there that the penetration Of uh, e commerce to total sales has grown significantly, and that is expected that will continue to be the case for several years. We are very happy with our business model. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but, you know, just um, in, uh, to the right, you can see uh, the operating margins that we deliver with each of the channels where we do business. And, um, and we have an opportunity here. I mean, the specialty, which is the full price stores with the decline of customer traffic and, and consequent uh, decline of sales has really hurt our profitability. So now we are barely profitable there. Um, but all the other parts of the business, the wholesale business delivers a 25 percent operating margin. Uh, our licensing business, obviously, every dollar that we collect is a profit dollar. Uh, so the, the profit, the, the operating margin is at almost 100 percent. Um, Our e-commerce business is very healthy and very profitable at at 24%. And even our outlet business, we have 86 stores, and we are earning about 60.5% in operating margin. So so we are very happy. The great thing here is that we can really maneuver. We can change the business model very quickly. Um, And when you look at the makeup of our business, uh, we feel that we are in a very good position. This, uh, one of the investment bankers did this uh, slide initially. They didn't put Lucky Brand. But, um, but the idea here was, well, you know, in this environment, you know, especially with the, the impact of Omni and, and how significant that is to retailers, uh, if you have less than 400 stores, that's a good thing. If you have um, a, a bigger penetration of e-commerce, that is also a good thing. So being in the upper quadrant here is the best place to be. You don't want to be where there are so, you have so many stores and you don't have a penetration of, uh, of e-commerce. And some of those companies that are having a tough time, you know, guess being one of them. Uh, Abercrombie and Fitch being another one, even limited brands. And, you know, says there are a lot of companies that are somewhat uh, dependent on the uh, amount of real estate that they have. You have a company like Abercrombie and Fitch, it has, I don't know, maybe 700 stores by now, maybe more. So we like this because it gives us a lot of flexibility to change the business model. So, the year of brand transformation. I, I can talk about this without talking about our team and our culture. Um, I call it uh, increased employee engagement. This is our, one of our goals. Uh, but I want to share with you our vision. This is, uh, and this came from the team. So we say, lucky like brand, look good, feel good, do good inspiring everyone to lead a lucky life and the idea here is like of course look good we are in that business so we better have that one right Um, (laughs) but you know feel good we believe that health is wealth and we are trying to really motivate our teams and, and our people to really live a healthy life and exercise and eat well and so forth. Um, And then do good. We want to make this place a better, uh, this world a better place. And we believe that with the company. And it's pretty amazing. We have a very young team. About uh, the age of our uh, corporate group is about 35. We have 500 people. And uh, that is the age, if you take me out, it will be about 25. But (laughs) no, no. And uh, it's, it's an, an incredible thing that the, when, when the team really heard that we were putting this and saying, hey, we're going to live by this vision and this mission, um, it was pretty incredible the level of engagement that we got and how committed people are to really make this real. So we use this as our filter for the big decisions that we make, and, um, and we try to uh, really get everybody to to really follow that belief, Um, inspiring everyone to lead a lucky life. The idea here is that we are all in control of our own luck. So we are using obviously the lucky term, but, you know, really to convey that message is like this, this things don't just happen to us. We are in control of uh, really forging or or modeling our own luck. And we believe in that. uh, we, we track how we do with our team in terms of level of engagement. We just did a survey, and um, we asked here, you know, to, for uh, our entire team, you know, we had a 92% participation level, which we are very proud of because normally the, the consultants are telling us that that number is between 60 and 70% if you're doing well. So to get so much uh, response well, is very important. And we are listening to what our, our people are saying um, and we asked them to define the culture. And uh, the size of the word there determines the frequency with which that that word was uh, mentioned by the people in, uh, in the company. And, you know, we, we are very proud of that. We are very proud of those results. We love all those, those words, you know, just uh, fun, open, honesty, driven, friendly, challenging. Well, you can see it, but, you know, just... And, and I honestly believe that this is going to make a big difference in in being successful. And I think that um, um, the companies that don't care about this or don't look at it or or think that they are um, superior to this will have uh, a significant issue. Because I think, especially with the younger generation, uh, this is something that people expect and they should expect. Executive, these are all things that we are trying to do to really respond to the environment. I I mentioned about the changes. So we are uh, optimizing, or or no, trying to go to a new go-to-market strategy. This is uh, uh, the idea here is that we were developing product from concept to delivery in about 52 weeks, and we are trying to reduce that to about 38 weeks. And the idea is that we could even do better someday. Uh, maybe Ken will talk more about this. But, you know, this is a big deal to be able to compete with um, with the fast fashion uh, companies. Uh, optimizing Omni strategy, obviously, this is very key. We just reorganized our teams. Uh, Jenna Renfrew, our chief merchandising officer, is here. And, and she has just uh, implemented this major reorganization to really streamline our merchant teams. <clears throat> Uh, And I think that that's going to be very helpful. Um, The executing our marketing strategy, we think that uh, about a concept that we call customer centricity. I'll spend uh, one minute on that. Um, And then pursuing new business development. We believe that we have a platform that could really be used much more efficiently with multiple brands. Uh, We think that even when we are small, we have capabilities to really operate in many different channels. So we are excited about being able to really bring other brands under the default and use our team uh, to really run those brands. So uh, we are looking at acquisitions very intensely with uh, our partners at Leonard Green. And um, and we are excited about uh, also the opportunity to take the, the company internationally. So... Customer centricity, you know, the, the, the whole idea is that, you know, it used to be that uh, most companies were very product centric. And it was all like, okay, you will build it, they will come. You make this amazing product, then customers will find you and so forth. And, and I think that there is a completely different school of thought here. And I, I'm one of those believers that we're, we're, you have to put the customer at the center today. It's not about putting the product at the center. Now, of course, you, you need amazing product. But, uh, but if you don't believe that the customers are not all created equal and that you don't believe that, that um, um, representing and, and making sure that, that those customers are pleased and, and satisfied and see the, the, the engagement level as, um, as a, a big um, uh, asset, um, I think you're going to lose. So, you know, in our case, and I'm, I'm going to show you this uh, l- uh, bunch of numbers here, but um, this is our customer base. We have 2.2 million people, customers, in our database. Um, we did. Uh, we are using a company called Kustora, and what they do is they determine the customer lifetime value of all the customers that we have in that database based on purchasing behavior and knowing what the attrition levels are and when, when the customers are going to buy more or, or where they, when they're going to drop off or so forth. And we found out, based on those numbers, that about 10% of our customer base, this, this 22,000 plus the 88,000 plus the 107,000, 216,000 people, okay, 10% of our total base, they represent about 73% of the expected repeat shopping that is going to happen next year. So now, think about that. I mean, if we know that those 200,000 people are so important, what we wouldn't do to really satisfy them. So that's the idea. So putting the customer at the center is a big, big deal. Um, this is my team, our team. Uh, these are all my direct reports, and you can see there, uh, this is Jenna, who is there sitting in the front, and here is Ken. And, uh, and I want to say... Look at that. She's all shy now, you see. Um, I want to say that, you know, just uh, it has been a, a wonderful, wonderful experience to uh, have had um, the opportunity to work with Kim during these three years. Um, and she has incredible talents and in design and creative. And, and she has been doing not just design of product, but also everything that touches the brand. So she is kind of like our brand steward in many ways. Um, in addition to product design, she is heading the whole marketing team and um, she is uh, heading visual merchandise and she was in the middle of designing our entire store. Um, and all that is incredible. But uh, but the number one quality that she brings is this incredible, amazing team player that she is. The, her humility and the way she works with everybody and collaborates with everybody is, uh, has been just exemplary for us. So... With that, I want to uh, turn the program to Ken. Thank you. <laughs> Do you want your phone? Okay.
0: I'm not going to look at you guys. <laughs> uh, I'm going to take that off. Thank you. Okay. Um, uh, how do I follow that? That's so amazing. Carlos is the best when he comes uh, on stage. He's incredible. He's so natural. So he expects that from me, and it's a little tougher. But I want to roll with it. Um, thank you so much for having me. Um, uh, first of all, I really want to thank Carlos and also his family, his whole family, that have brought this um, together. And, um, and I feel very honored to be part of, um, of course, I have my own family. I, I come from I'm a family of, uh, I have you know, uh, four siblings. There's there's five of us as well. So I really understand the big family. And then also I have two kids of my own as well. And my husband's here. And um, what's really exciting is that, you know, throughout your whole um, career path, you know, you join, you have your own family and you join so many different kind of brands in my instance. And um, you find um, and you learn from each of these families. And I think that, you know, I want to tell you my journey in terms of how I got to Lucky. And that's my new family in LA. So uh, that's why I wanted to kind of start there. And then the other piece as well is, um, um, I think that you know the other thing too is that with any of the the learnings in terms of brand and also transformation, it's all about understanding where you come from, and that's going to be how I'm going to take you through uh, the journey of all these brands I've been through as well. Um, for me, uh, I want to give you a little colour of uh, where I grew up. Uh, as you can tell, I have an accent as well as Carlos. <laughs> um, I came. I actually was born in Hong Kong. I moved to uh, England when I was six, um, and I. Um, I moved to England. My parents were immigrant parents. And, you know, they were working very hard. And then they brought all of us over. And we all kind of, you know, was in a very small northern town up in um, Lincolnshire, for some of you guys who are from England. Um, And it's um, not very diverse. We were literally... The only non white family in the whole of pretty much the town. (laughs) No, the school, I'm kidding. And, um, it's, you know, it was difficult at the same time. You learn to adapt and you learn to kind of evolve. And I think that that was a huge learning, but it was, it was an amazing experience. And I think that England gave me a huge opportunity in terms of creativity because I think that what was really great about England is, um, the design schools there were actually incredible. And I, I was fortunate enough to get into Kingston and I was there, um, during that period where, you know, I learned so much about kind of, you know, basically design and kind of creativity as well as the process of, of design. Uh, so that was really exciting. And, um, and it really from my parents and also in terms of being at Kingston, I think all of that kind of instilled a lot in me, especially my parents. Um, passion, hard work, you know, um, independence and also drive, because the first thing I wanted to do was basically find a job. I didn't care what it was, I need to find a job. I want to make sure that they were not worried about me. So I think that was my mission. So that was a huge drive for me. Um, It was really kind of, you know, uh, uh, I think an underlining kind of factor of, you know, me working and being very focused. Um, Let me show you a little bit about my career. Um, I started with, um, after Kingston, I actually uh, went straight to Abercrombie. And um, I started there in uh, in 99. And during that time, it was... um, a very small company. There was about 200 some people, and we were sharing an uh, office with uh, um, basically the, uh, the limited brand. And we were sharing an office, basically, upstairs was basically um, uh, Victoria's Secrets, and we were downstairs uh, at Abercrombie. And I remember going to the canteen, it would be people in black. Black, you know, black suits with slettos and there was us with flip flops and jeans, and basically, you know, tanks. And we were kind of joining, joining forces in terms of eating, and then we would leave. And it was such a bizarre experience. But what was really great was, um, for me coming from England, um, I felt like I knew trend. I knew what, um, you know, kind of, you know, basically growing up in a little bit of the, the kind of Asia influence as well, Asian influence. I knew about kind of like the Asian trend, the European trend. But then going to going to um, coming to Abercrombie, it was a huge kind of a in terms of culture, uh, yes, we all spoke English, but at the same time, it was very different. You know, I learned a lot about what it meant to be collegiate, what was um, what East Coast meant, what was prep. I mean, that was so new in terms of kind of you know dialogue, and uh, and I think that that really builds the brand. And I think at Abercrombie at the time, especially with um, uh, Mike Jeffries, who was uh, the CEO at the time, there was so much uh, attention to kind of you know a really narrow. Um, uh, focused in terms of the market space. So, you know, the, and I'll tell you a little bit more in depth uh, as we go through, but, you know, it was very much about um, exclusivity, it was about um, aspiration. And I think those were really kind of big buzzwords that were happening during that time. Um, and then I was fortunate enough to kind of somehow, there, were, there was this bubbling of a new concept. And the reason why at the time was basically Abercrombie had. Um, uh, Abercrombie kids kids which was basically starting from i think oh, I should know this but it was about 6 7 years old to maybe 14ish uh, 12 and those sizes were basically captured because it was mini versions of what Abercrombie was doing and Abercrombie was basically focusing on the you know college kids and in between that there was a gap and i think that um, you know from a strategy perspective there was a hole there in the market and i think um, there were definitely other brands that were doing that you know i won't name you know, team brands that were doing that kind of in-between kind of team world. Uh, And I think that um, at the time there was a vision to basically start something that was very different. And so Hollister came about um, and I was able to join the team from the beginning and kind of, you know, started from scratch. And um, very fortunate, again, this is where it becomes a very different learning. It's West Coast. It's about surf culture. It's vintage. It's um, this whole idea of kind of California. And for me, again, it was like, Oh, what does that mean? And and I I think throughout this whole process, it's about kind of learning how to build a brand. So I was very fortunate to be able to to be part of that and be exposed to that. And then, I don't know why, they always pick me to kind of start the new things, but it was really great. I, I was fortunate enough to kind of, at the time, again, Abercrombie was basically, the people that were in Abercrombie were transitioning out into the workforce. Think about it. They've basically graduated and they're now kind of moving away. Where were they going to buy clothes? And they were basically going to... Maybe Gap, maybe J Crew. There were so many different options out there, and they did not want to lose their customer. They wanted to create something that was basically kind of post, you know, that really captured the postgraduate audience, and especially when it comes to kind of brand loyalty. At the time, you know, it was the golden era of Abercrombie, where everybody loved Abercrombie, right? You couldn't do anything wrong, and it was amazing. And so they basically kind of, you know, thought about we need to start a new concept. And at the time, it was called Concept Four, and we were in this secret bunker in like the middle of, you know, New Albany and um and so we basically started kind of like concepting this idea and basically um rule came about and um and we kind of you know created this kind of brand from scratch and it was really exciting uh it was very much focused on kind of like the older customer in a sense of you know a little bit older and then um and kind of you know again still grounding around uh, all the product that um the Abercrombie Corporation really kind of did well um uh after that about 2005 I got a call and um I was um very lucky to be able to join um well to meet uh, mickey drexler again another great ceo i've been very fortunate throughout my career that i was able to kind of work with so many different amazing ceos um and so i i joined um i joined uh, j crew and uh basically was starting up madewell for for um for j crew corporation and uh, at the time again it was very much about Here's the name. Here's the brand, and um, we won't do this to it. And kind of, you know, working through that. So I'll walk you through as well what that looks like. And again, it was a very different type of um, philosophy. If you think about, um, you know, Mickey, it was about exclusivity. It was about, you know, if you think about the, the idea of kind of um, aspiration, right? Whereas Mickey was Gap, J. Crew. It was very much about broader appeal um about kind of you know a lot more volume in a way and a lot more about kind of like you know um appealing to a lot more people a lot more age groups so it was a very different philosophy and I think that you know I learned a lot through the, that process and those kind of different leadership um uh, values basically um and then um I, I was at Madewell for about just under eight years and um and I left it was a, a big shock I, I left uh a baby that I brought up, basically. And um, and I took, a t- I took about a year off and uh, actually kind of consulted for a while. And I actually kind of joined um, and consulted for a, a company, a small company called... Um Herschel's uh they're known for their backpacks uh they're known for their kind of accessories basically and it's basically two guys I met uh pri- you know before this and then connected with them and they wanted uh, help in terms of focusing on their design process as well as kind of the creative uh, uh, idea of kind of building more within their brand so um worked with them for a little while and then um met Carlos and then I was like and I'm going to be really frank with you. When I left Madewell, I was thinking that I'm never going to find a a home or brand that I'm going to be as passionate about. And and of course I was wrong. Carlos came in and kind of, you know, uh, basically I met with him and it was one of those situations where it was a denim brand first and foremost. It was my sweet spot. And the other piece as well is I was looking for a brand that had soul and had DNA and had all of the, the right ingredients, especially from a design perspective. You need that. You need to kind of be able to work with incredible ingredients to make a great, great dish. And, um, and it was too good to be true. And, and uh, so, yeah, I, I joined the team about three under three years ago. Sorry, that was a really long-winded uh, page. Um, so I want to walk you through um, some of the kind of execution and also design of what Carlos kind of mentioned in terms of the strategy. Um, so what have I learned in terms of the brand creation also transformation? I think the biggest thing is, you know, uh, uh, there 's there's a lot that that's, you know, that takes part, but I think I wanted to kind of uh, pull it into three different buckets. Uh, these were basically kind of core values for me that were re- you know, really important in terms of really establishing establishing these core values and making sure that they work on top of that, creating this, um, this uh, opportunity to be able to be creative as well as to create uniqueness and also uh, really grow the brand and so from a brand perspective, understanding the history uh, creating. And also protecting the um, the core DNA of what the brand is—that's huge. You've got, really got to kind of understand the history of what it is to be to be able to go through and sift through and say what is important. Let's make sure we protect this. What isn't important? What what do we need to kind of move move through and actually transform? Um, um, and also kind of you know again making the brand relevant, uh, creating you know creating a unique story. I think that, you know, that ties into the marketing as well as making sure that from a unique story perspective, your brand and also how you look at kind of product, really that all of that is all part and part of it. Uh, product perspective, I think that, you know, uh, defining the product differentiation is hugely important, especially when it comes to the marketplace right now at this, you know, where we are in retail You can pretty much type in anything and there'll be 15 billion versions of it and every single price point. What makes you stand out? And that goes into the fact that you've got to be able to shop in a way that feels unique. And there's a trust and also there's a a connectivity in terms of the brand. And I think that, again, it goes back to my first point of brand equity and also brand value and also making sure that you as a customer or you uh, who's basically kind of working through the brand that you feel like there's a uniqueness that feels different. Um, driving basically um, innovation and also relevance. I think that you know, we're in we're in fashion. We have to be you know, you know we have to change. We have to be adaptable. We have to kind of be relevant. Um, if not, we're just making clothes. We're not you know we're not kind of par- participating in fashion. So you know, uh, I think that you know, that's hugely important for us to kind of be relevant. Um, protecting quality and also uh, perception and value as well. I think that um, the perceived value is very important. Um, you know I think that yes you know uh, different brands have different kind of you know uh, price points, but I think for a lucky, I think that you know when we talk about premium, it did start off in a very kind of strong premium brand, and I think that the product that we kind of you know give to the customer it really needs to have that quality base, um, especially when it comes to kind of the relationship of value and also price um customer creating you know the customer centric culture that's something that you know Carlos talked about already, and then also driving a two way conversation and communication um again. No longer can we just say, this is us, this is the brand that we are, go ahead and take it. We have to really kind of think about what the customer, uh, we have to listen to the customer. And we have to understand them. It's not that we're asking the customer des- to design for us. We're not doing that. But we need to just understand what is it that they need and what is it that makes them tick. And also, at the same time, what is it that they love from us? And then from there, kind of have the basis to be able to grow and have confidence to grow in the brand. Um, and also, inspire the customer, I think, it goes back to kind of uniqueness and telling the story. If you can't inspire them, why are they coming to you? Especially from a product perspective. From, you know, they have so many choices. You've got to be able to tell that story be able to kind of make it unique. Um, I'm going to walk you through now the the kind of journey that I've learned, and I'm just giving you a little bit more of a colour in terms of where I've, you know my journey and in terms of learning. Um, so Abercrombie, I'm sure a lot of you guys know this already. Um, it's a, it was basically an original outfitter that's, uh, that sold sport sporting goods. I mean, um, it's pretty unique in the sense that you know it was established in um, 19 oh my gosh 1930. That's that's incredible. But anyway. Got it wrong. Um, so the date, um, 1949 there. <laughs> um, but Abercrombie, basically, um, it's sporting goods. And also, um, the customer itself is basically, you know, um, there were so many kind of like amazing attributes in terms of the brand at the time. And then during the, um, I guess, 77, basically, Abercrombie was uh, a kind of, you know, went bankrupt. And then track back now very quickly to kind of now, what happened was basically um, you had limited brand that kind of bought it out. And then from there, uh, Mike Jeffries came on board and basically became president and also then CEO. And I think at the time, the biggest change was there was a CEO that came in and had a vision and wanted to change his brand to become a very, um, very much more of a contemporary brand. And again, carving out those ideas of basically collegiate, classic, you know, the, the classic kind of element of kind of American kind of casual wear, as well as kind of preppy, all of those things were basically instilled in the brand. And I think that it really kind of had a huge transformation, of course, very, very successful. Um, And, of course, in terms of products, as as we know, it's denim, it's T-shirts, it's graphic tees, it's fleece. And so there were huge dominance in terms of key drivers, in terms of categories. It was really great. Um, And if you think about, you know, I'm showing this in in terms of before and after, because I always feel like people love before and after. They love a makeover. So maybe this is a little bit more entertaining. Um, You know, um, it was a, you know, it's basically it sold guns. If you think about my, how Abercrombie selling guns, there were kind of, you know, a lot of kind of like equipment, sports equipment, but now it's basically this kind of like, you know, it's changed now in the last few years, but it was like perfume, <laughs> fierce was everywhere. And, um, you know, uh, it was really dark and there was a lot of, um, naked, uh, salespeople, uh, everywhere. So, you know, so that's one of the attractions. It was basically capturing this audience. It was really elite and kind of really good looking, um, And um, from a product perspective, it was basically, you know, it sold, you know, like you said, very kind of like, very kind of work-weary ideas, um, kind of no-frills, very much about kind of utilitarian. And then it went to um, uh, great denim, uh, beautiful kind of cargo, and it was an obsession to detail. I think that that was what was so powerful about Abercrombie. I felt like during my time there, I learned so much about product building. It was this obsession of, I mean, to the point where it was basically how many stitches per inch are you going to use on your top stitching? What is the text thread? How thick is it going to be? And how are you going to wash it? How is it going to pucker? And so that obsession of detail was so important. And I think that during the time when we were there, it was basically, yes, I graduated from Kingston. I felt like I, you know, yay, I, I knew so much. And you've basically relearned. Uh, and, and it was a huge learning curve. And I think that... Um, Wash, wash was incredible you know if you think about the thickness of fabric and how they kind of built so much wash and attention to detail all those things were one of the reasons why they were so successful it really had a great quality to the product um, so you know you can, as you guys can see it's basically fleece graphics and I'm just showing some of the kind of like highlighters of what I felt like Abercrombie stood for at the time um, and then now Hollister so Hollister basically was a um, a make-believe brand and um And again, it's about creating a vision and creating a brand from scratch. And uh, Harsa, for some of you guys who don't know... um it's, it's, it's basically a... Um, the original name came from this Hollister Ranch. It's just above Santa Barbara. And um, and it's a beautiful area that's kind of locals only. People go there to surf. And I think that we basically concepted this idea of basically building this brand and making it into a West Coast really cool surf idea and um, making it very unique to uh, to basically the East Coast prep, right? This is about kind of like surfing culture. It's about, you know, the... And I was learning about it too because I've never surfed my entire life. I'm scared of water. Um, <laughs> So, you know, for me, it was like, what's what? What's OP? Oh, my God, what's Volcom? And, and it's like during that process, you learn, right? You kind of learn. Oh, wow. This is what it means. OK. And we spent a lot of time. We had an office in um, um, in Santa Barbara. Uh, sorry, in um, Santa Monica, as well as in Laguna, where we actually stayed there and kind of observed and kind of really soak, soak in who, you know, who was wearing what and how people were you know, dressing and kind of the influence in terms of the environment as well. And, um, you know, we created the story with with the idea of basically targeting a a, a younger audience between uh, 14 and 18. And then also at the time, it was basically this idea of kind of Southern California and also this kind of vintage surf culture. Um, And of course, the store really kind of represented that, right? Um, In the stores, basically, there was a huge kind of like uh, amazing kind of plasma screens of, you know, there was a camera actually, I totally remember this. It was a camera basically over by um, the pier in... um, Uh, um, Santa Monica where it was live streaming imagery to the stores and you saw the waves crashing, you saw people kind of surfing and stuff. And then I think again, it creates that environment that is so amazing, especially from a store perspective, store experience. It was really great. And then also when you go into the stores, you can see color, you see palm trees, you see the, the wood and the, that kind of tiki kind of like surf hut. And again, it's all encompassing in terms of telling the story. Um, And then the front of the, the stores, basically you still had sexy men there. Um, And it kind of drew people in. They're like, oh, my God, they've got the zinc in the nose. And so that was really cool. I had no idea what that was, but it's okay. Yeah. Uh, Sunscreen that wasn't wiped off. Um, And then, you know, from a product perspective, again, going back to, you know, if you have a a foundation of a a corporation like Abercrombie that knows how to do denim so well, knows how to do graphic tea so well, knows how to do wash. um, It's very natural for them to create a brand and leverage those expertise. And so they basically created, again, a brand that really kind of showed denim, amazing, beautiful kind of wash products. And again, kind of expanding on the kind of nature of what surf culture looks like. So um, all of this in terms of just the, the beachy kind of vibe. And also at the time, you know, all that kind of like really big, bold graphics. And also creating that um, the brand uh, equity in terms of the logoing was very important. At Abercrombie, it was the moose connecting it to that hunting idea, right? Uh, for Hollister, it was basically the bird. I think at the time we were dreaming, uh, we, were, we had the idea of palm tree, but somebody took it. So we actually ended up with a bird. Um, but it was really exciting. And then also, you know, of course, in denim as well, that, um, the iconography of making it different, making it, making sure that it feels different to the other brands. That was all kind of part of, make, you know, generating a brand that feels um, uh, differentiated. Um. And then Rule, um, this is a little bit more quieter because I think it, uh, it went away after maybe five years. Uh, but Rule, again, the story was basically kind of creating that postgraduate idea. And what w- was interesting about Rule was that it was the first time that uh, we really kind of felt, uh, felt different about making sure the product felt different, right? It wasn't just about denim and t-shirt and... Uh, And graphics. Uh, It was about, hey, what else do we need to do? And that's where we kind of started to uh, kind of build this story about this European family that came and they traveled from however many, kind of a couple of generations ago and traveled to New York and they settled in New York. And it was basically this whole idea of they settled in Greenwich Village and they were inspired by New York City. And it was very much more of a a modern kind of like um, uh, urban uh, influence in terms of a brand. And so there was charcoal. It was not black. There was charcoal, so it, was, it got darker. because um, uh, I'm joking, because Abercrombie and Hollister, they n- never used black. <laughs> they, they only used navy. <laughs> um, so charcoal was used. It was really radical. And then also at the time, it was skinny jeans, and whereas every, everybody else was doing boots. So we were basically paving the way in terms of new ideas. And it was really exciting because we, we used uh, a lot of great, you know, we basically kind of uh, put a lot of new trends into the mix. Uh, with this new brand. And, you know, and I think that a lot of the roots was basically off of this idea of you know, 1922 and um, this whole idea of quality tradition and also even just a sophistication. You know, saying the word sophisticated in the Albuquerque Corporation was quite radical. But it was basically, at the time, it was like a higher price point and we could use leather, we could use cashmere, we could use silk. It was like, ah... I mean, for, for, you know, when we were working on it, it was like, oh, my gosh, we couldn't make anything. It was great. Um, and so that was really exciting. And then the age group was basically um, uh, 22 to 35. Um, and I think that, uh, the, you know, again, protecting the idea of basically um, kind of, you know, creating a story and then from there building, off, building product off of that. Um, of course, you can see you know, denim, leather goods, cashmere. You know, graphic tees and fleece were still part of it, but there was so much more that we could basically give, and it was—it was about breadth and also differentiation in terms of in terms of product. We basically created this—you know—beautiful kind of like um, packaging, and also um, all these ideas were basically off of some some relevance in terms of just um, inspiration from New York. Um, this was basically about—you know—the person can drink now. This is basically off of a whiskey bottle. So we were like, yeah, you know, connecting all those dots. It was really fun. Um, and then from a store perspective, we were building these um, kind of facades that were basically um, uh, kind of Gr- Greenwich Village-inspired kind of houses, basically. And again, when we first, um, and this is actually a true story, when we first opened this up as a concept store in Eastern, uh, in uh, Columbus, Ohio, people were queuing outside, and they had their IDs ready because they thought that it was a nightclub Um, they thought that it was like a new thing that they wanted to get into and there there were kids everywhere and and then we realized it was like oh it's working I thought it was a disaster but um, the CEO was like yes it's working yeah we're creating kind of buzz so so again the rooms you can see it's really kind of moody sexy and I think what, what really kind of what we were designing was basically rooms that were very much about, you know, it was somebody's house. It was somebody's kind of living room. You're walking in. The product was beautiful. It was really well lit. And uh, there was like paintings on the floor. And this family hadn't, they've moved in, but they f- haven't bothered to put the, the paintings up. It was all kind of there. And I think it was really kind of exciting um, to kind of build a brand like that. And what was really great was, uh, um, you know, the interiors of the floors. Uh, sorry, in the middle of it all was basically luggage from a make-believe story that we had was with the beautiful luggage that came from you know um, the European inspiration. And from there, really, leather goods was really a huge center of the of the presentation as well. You can see over here, these were not sold. These were actually very, very expensive because they were one-off made in Italy. So they were just basically um, just for show. And then we sold the leather goods. And I'll show you what those looked like. So um, leather was actually a huge focus. And we actually designed these. And these were basically made in Italy. They were actually maybe too expensive for that market, but you know, really gorgeous. Didn't compromise on um, uh, um, cost and quality. It was really uh, stunning. And I, I think at the time, I, again, going back to the philosophy of you know Abercrombie Corporation, it was about details. And as you can see, it was in uh, basically beauty inside and out. there was attention to detail. Um, and then you know, of course, all of this as well in terms of just basically. The, um, the packaging as well, Mercer. You know, just naming after the New York City. All of these were sold about washes and details there. Um, Madewell. So I was there for, from the beginning as well. Um, um, Mickey Drexler had the name of Madewell, and um, and again, it was basically about um, bringing a name that had already been established. And again, Madewell at the time was basically uh, was a workwear company, uniform producer and so the name we had and we basically when mickey came and took this on um we basically kind of relaunched it in 2006 and uh really kind of you know from workwear to basically a little bit more of a, much more of a relevant brand and and the stores again in terms of environment you can see how light and kind of you know easy and uh, very kind of you know very appealing it is really quickly um And then, before you can see workwear very kind of like no frills, very utilitarian, and then the relevance in terms of making sure that you know from a brand perspective it was really anchored towards you know denim and also a lot of relevant kind of fashion around it uh and then i 'm going to talk to you through uh lucky okay um uh, so for lucky, um I think one of the things that was a huge learning in terms of you know brand i think that you know. I'm gonna talk you through basically the brand piece as well as um product evolution, as well as um uh design process and also uh store experience and also insight and also the marketing uh approach that we have. Um as you know, you know SWOT analysis is always something that's really kind of easy for us to kind of you know do that as initial. And so, from a product perspective, we talk a lot about kind of you know the fact that from a strength, um, it's basically you know the, if it's an authentic brand that has a lot of strong pillars. The DNA is really strong. There's a huge brand loyalty, which Carlos talked about. There's a strong kind of you know brand awareness, which you know Carlos showed in his deck as well. In terms of weaknesses, there was definitely a, a lack of relevance. That was something that we were really targeting, and making sure that we knew that we had to really you know show up in that area, as well as you you know, um, it was a demanding and lengthy process in terms of the, pr- the design process as well as pr- uh, the product timeline. Uh, so I'll talk a little bit about that. And then also complexity in terms of the, uh, the business model. You know, there are many brands that basically only do um, brick and mortar. There's a lot of brands that do e- um, online. There's some that only do, uh, uh, I guess, wholesale. And we were doing all of that. So again, that complexity is something that is maybe a weakness, but at the same time, it's a max- we can maximize on it. Um, opportunity, um, putting the comp- uh, the, basically the customer in the center was huge for us. And also capitalizing on um, denim and making sure that we build that. That is uh, the forefront and also the foundation of the brand. We want to make sure that we really build off of that. The other piece as well is leveraging vendors. We have incredible vendor base as well. And then also um, leveraging the distribution, uh, going back to what we were talking about in terms of weakness. Um, frets, you know, more traffic, which Carlos talked about, and also online as well as kind of rising in fashion, uh, fast fashion. Um, I'll go through this really quickly but um, uh, before you know of course Carlos talked about basically the uh, the way that you know the brand started and also we were the original uh, premium denim brand and then the focus um, of you know denim and West Coast was still there the uniqueness and also the uh, it's a hot the way that the stores were basically, you know, really high-end boutiques as well, and they were all very unique, which was really exciting. And then um, from a brand perspective, you know, Lucky Clover, Lucky Clover with the four leaves were really kind of defi- defining for the brand, as well as Lucky You and The Fly. That was really kind of a quirk and really kind of great messaging. And again, it's always been there. And it's, a, again, a very great strength of the brand. Um, and then over here, basically, you know, Carlos joined the brand. And this is where we're really imagining how we're kind of approaching the creative process as well as really transforming the brand. And as you can see, Denim Democracy is kind of a huge piece of it, which is about kind of, you know, denim. And we really believe in um, inclusiveness when it comes to the brand uh, values. Uh, we've kind of built out, you know, a plus within our denim line and also a lot more expansion to the line. And I think that, again, you know, we really believe that it's um, if we have the right product every shape and size should be able to kind of wear it. So that's something that's a huge kind of um, uh, uh, push for us. Um, and also the the aesthetic vision as well, making sure that we have that personality and protect that kind of differentiation and the wit that, you know, that, that has always been there from a product perspective. And also creating versatility. This is something that we know that it's an opportunity for us. Um, the brand was a little bit very narrow, and it's like how do we broaden and really kind of reach a bigger audience and a, a bigger customer base? Um, and also, and I think that the biggest thing is, you know, Carlos is is very creative, he, um, and he really kind of makes sure that all of us are approaching the brand from that way. Okay. Um, just a reminder of the brand history. This is basically a DNA of the brand. There's so much, out, there's so much uh, richness in terms of history and DNA, and I think that one of the things is, you know, like I said, the fly, uh, message on the fly, all the beautiful um, graphics that the that brand had done over the past um, uh, 20, 25, 26 years as well. And then you have basically products, which is basically very kind of workwear and also a lot of great, beautiful denim as well. But then you have lots of kind of like very, uh, the, I would say that these are really cool for the time, right? They're amazing at the time. But at the same time, now, if you think about like a bag like this, it would be a little tough. It's kind of very hippie. But, um, so again, it's all about, I just want to show you guys how a brand can lose its relevance. And it's how do we kind of like steer it to, uh, to a better place that feels right. Um, and so this is basically the brand pillars. We talk about music, um, Southern California, also moto, and also this whole idea of Americana. And these are all really rich ingredients for us to work with. Um, and I'm kind of trying to, for me, it was the same uh, uh, desire to basically show imagery, to uh, evoke that, cha- that kind of idea of what does that look like? And I think, uh, again, music, you can imagine music is all about that kind of festival where, and that rock, you know, that, that idea of kind of music, everybody loves music, right? Even if you love you know, so many different kind of uh, uh, genres of music, you can kind of uh, really relate to it. And I think that, you know, the graphic tees and just that spirit of, you know, denim off of some, you know, graphic tee or even what you're wearing in terms of, um, a festival is all part of that outfit. Um, You know, basically California kind of West Coast lifestyle, this whole beach laid backness. And I think that that wash idea, you know, uh, when I say wash, I'm talking about when we wash a T-shirt, that kind of softness, all those things are very important for for a product. I think that, you know, these are basically uh, our own product here. You can see how we're kind of evolving the brand. Um, and then from a uh, you know moto as well, you can see that edge, that kind of idea of you know um, the biker, that kind of moto, the rebel, and that heritage is all part of the brand DNA. And all of these are actually our images here. So we've really evolved and actually honoured um, the DNA that we have. Um, Americano as well. It's you know. I think that Americana, it's, it's not just about, now that I showed an image of a flag, it's very obvious, but um, it's not just about that. It's about the spirit of this idea of kind of casualness. And I think that denim is uh, the epitome of that. And so really kind of showing these images to show what that looks like. And um, these are all about our images here. Um, and then when it comes to brand uh, aesthetic evol- uh, yeah, evolution, we talk about denim as being the biggest focus. And I think that fit, fashion, fabric, and also um, uh, the idea of, you know, just all the finishes that we do, this, uh, the obsession to wash and also quality is huge. And, and denim is uh, nearly 50% of our business. We want to make sure that we really kind of like show up. And I think in the past it was basically uh, we were doing a lot of five pockets basic five pockets and there's not enough of fashion and as a denim brand we need to do all of that and do it all well so that was a huge focus for us and also bo- bohemian a lot of us a lot of comp- uh, a lot of people see uh, lucky as a bohemian brand yes we are a bohemian brand there's a lot of that spirit but at the same time it's not just a certain look so i want to show you what that looks like and what that what that transition can be and also versatility in terms of uh, making sure that we kind of really grow in that area and then also accessories um i put this in here because i think that accessories really make an outfit feel very different and it can really shape a personality um denim as i said um you know it's we're really kind of showing up on fashion as you can see it's a lot of motion here and it's not just about a a basic five pocket that was really kind of important for us so really kind of being obsessive about quality and that you know again especially in the denim area right now everybody is really kind of you know this everybody wants to be in part of denim because it's the fabric of foundation of everybody's wardrobe and so you know we really want to make sure that we're pushing that innovation in this area um and also versatility, this is something that is a new, in a way, a new word for us And a Lucky. And the reason why is because um, it was very narrow in terms of the look and feel. It was very kind of, you know, boho to, their, to, to, the, to the customer was very much about woodblock and prints. And it was a mix of prints and it was very kind of like, very um, ethnic, I guess, as well. And, and at the end of the day, it, it's not just about that. And I think that you can see from these slides that it can be, uh, yes, kind of the woodblock and more traditional ideas, but at the same time, it can be about just a simple piece as well. And then also in terms of kind of versatility, it doesn't, we, you know, in the past, it was very much about it, its address and that's it. And the versatility aspect of it wasn't really kind of, um, built out. And I think that we can basically build out a much more of a robust, um, beautiful kind of collection that the customer can wear this for date night and they can wear it for different occasions. So that was something that was a, you know, a strategy that we really want to implement. Um, and and I, like I said, in terms of accessories, this is basically where we've really expanded. Um, and you know, you can see basically it's boots all the way through to heels. And again, it's all about that, um, versatility and from, you know, tote uh, tote bag all the way to a handbag. So it's just, again, that spectrum of, of showing up in a way that really captures the, you know, the customer's wardrobe, you know, like what Carlos was saying, they were using us for a weekend. What are they wearing when it comes to date night? Where are they, what, are, what are they wearing when they want to dress up a little bit more? And so for us, if they trust our taste and if they trust our uh, – we have that connection with the customer, we should be able to do this well and give them that, um, that product range that they would love. Um, And then uh, the licensees, Carlos showed the growth of licensees. And again, I think that was really uh, transformative and also exciting is that, you know, Carlos and I both believe that, you know, licensing uh, companies um, in the past, the relationship was very much about, hey, this is my name, go ahead and use it. Give me the royalty uh, and give me the numbers after that. And there was not that really strong connection in terms of um, working with the licensees as your own brand, basically working with them like they're an extension of your team. And so we've really kind of instilled that kind of philosophy within the way that we work with licensees. And in, in return, the product looks better. It looks way more connected in terms of the brand. And I think that, you know, that's really worked out in such a great way for us. And I think that that change in terms of how we're, again, partnering, collaborating with our, um, with our external partners, uh, they've become internal partners for us. Um, and so for Boots, for Camudo, it's, it's you know, beautiful. Yeah, you know, we, we're very proud of all these different licensees and we really kind of continue to grow this area. Um, and more here as well. And, of course, home. As well, this is brand new for us, so don't say anything. <laughs> uh, the watches, as well, don't say anything yet. <laughs> um, I want to talk you through the design process. Um, so, this is basically an example of how we work. Um, and Carlos talked about the go-to-market calendar, and we talk about it in terms of from inception, concept, all the way through to install. And uh, I think in the past we were basically working in a very traditional method. Most companies are. Um, and there's a lot of fast company, fast fashion companies that weren't doing that. And they were really reinventing their model. And so we were basically, um, the need is really for us to change and adapt. And I think that, um, so what we thought about was basically how do we shrink and also shrink our calendar? And what's really challenging for us is that. We are not just, you know, designing and just selling it ourselves in our own stores. We're basically um, having to up in terms of a wholesale time frame as well, which is in the middle of the process. So really, our 38 we- weeks that we have right now is actually pretty remarkable that we'd be able to do that. And of course, you know, we can always challenge ourselves to get quicker and be faster, but we're working through it um, And so this is basically the first step. This is actually our concept boards for denim. Our team basically builds out these concept boards that tell a story. And we work with, um, I don't expect you guys to see the details. It's more just the process. (laughs) Um, But, you know, we build out kind of ideas, which we show kind of, you know, it's the same way, inspiration boards, building out all those ideas and actually telling a story, making sure that in each delivery, the biggest thing that we kind of kick off in terms of concept is basically the narrative for the season. First and foremost, of course, you've got to have a really strong foundation of the vision of the brand. Then you basically go through through um, the, the narrative for the season. And then from there with each delivery, what does it look like? How did it dif- how's it dif- what's the product differentiation for each delivery? So this is basically denim. And then for fashion, this is crazy. I know a lot of colors here, but um, this is actually from women's on one side. Over here, and the men's on the other side, and this is how we show concept to the merchant team, and we basically collaborate really well with merchant team to kind of really align on what it is that's going to drive the business. And uh, Jenna's here, and she's a- amazing. Um, comes from a great wealth of experience, so she's able to come in and kind of like you know challenge our process as well, which is great. Um, and this is basically showing up on you know again the narrative of the season, and then seeing the synergy between men's and women's. We have uh, both um, genders within our brand, and that's really exciting. And then basically from there we. What we do is we actually invite our vendors, our licensee partners, and also, of course, our own design team to come in and see the concept. And the reason why we do that is because this is how we're changing the model. We're actually asking our vendors and also our licensees to go and design as well. And what that means is we're collaborating. We're no longer doing the traditional model where, hey, design team, you've got to go and do a tech pack and be obsessed about every single design. And then from there and pass it to tech team, and they go through the technical aspects of it. And then from there, we send it out to the vendor. They make a sample. It comes back, and we're like, no, no, we don't like it anymore. Then we go back. and we So that was what was the the traditional process. The way that we're working right now is we're changing the way we're working, where we're going much more... um, we're collaborating in a very different way to the vendor, with the vendors, and also with our licensees. And really, what it boils down to is a quicker and more reactionary process. And um, what that means is that we're creating more create, well, we're actually in, uh, asking for more creativity from the vendors as well as from our own team because it's not just we're not saying it, we're internally we're not doing anything. We're basically kind of our biggest thing is making sure that we we still design some uh, a lot of things, but we're basically uh, cl- collaborating with them to make sure that they understand our concept and what it is that we want to do. So this is a, a huge, you know, huge deal. And then also, uh, research and develop, you know, development, basically we're kind of in, in the, uh, in the vendors, uh, um, offices, we're working with them. And again, it's about speed. So we're basically there working with them in a huge collaboration and working uh, side by side with them as well. Um, And then this is, um, so once all that's done, I'm kind of flying through it a little bit, but once all that's done, the product comes in and we basically work with merchandising team to kind of adopt and really kind of, um, uh, basically edit the line. And then, and then we basically build out this room that really tells that story. This is from another season, but, um, it shows basically the, the, the idea of kind of, you know, the product and how it looks in terms of an environment like a store. And you can see just, you know, we build, we build out presentation rooms that way. Okay. Um, and then when it comes to store in terms of lucky, this is basically how lucky stores were. And you can see again, when I talk about the boutiqueness of uh, the brand at the time, it was very eclectic. Every single store is different. Um, it's amazing in terms of the fact that it's so uh, embracing in terms of creativity, but at the same time, it's a little bit of a nightmare to kind of, you know, be able to say, our brand is about this, right? If you walk into this store, it could be really hippie and rock and roll, and then this one that's a little bit more classic. So again, the variety of differentiation is very different. So I think that we were kind of, you know, not that we're trying to tighten up and make everything the same. We, that's not what we want to do. We want to honor the, the um, creativity and differentiation, but at the same time, making sure that we can kind of create that, that, that um, the, I guess, the guardrails making sure that we we feel happy with what we present to the customer. Uh, So this is actually our point store. And Carlos uh, referred to um, us as a new flagship store. Um, This is basically in uh, Manhattan Beach. And um, this is our store that we have. And it's our uh, first concept store where we have, of course, the environment basically where the door uh, closes. And there's a rolling system where it's like a garage door. Again, it rolls up. It's beautiful, and then there's like gorgeous kind of in, uh, inspiration in here. Again, telling the story, seating areas of, as well to kind of again talking about the customer-centric kind of culture. Really giving the, the customer a little bit more time, um, honouring and giving them an experience that feels much more unique. And then, of course, there's a piece, you know, art in here in terms of honouring the the brand pillars as well. Uh, in the stores again there's a denim bar there's a collection for women's and also men's and you have accessories here and also this is basically where we have a beautiful kind of jewel box of accessories with um, leather goods here and this is basically where we actually tested some homeware as well which is really great and it was a great response and then branding this is basically from uh, 2012 and 2014 I joke around it looks like a a romance novel cover Um, it does Uh, um, we were here basically and now we're here so it just feels cooler, again, connecting to the brand and what we feel like is relevant. Um, and even from a kind of denim perspective, again, we have, you know, plus we've got different shapes, uh, our denim, you know, the the quality of denim, the recovery, you know, there's so many different body types, and we're really kind of, you know, giving that spectrum of fits. Um, you can see, you know, even just, you know, the, our real, these are our team members in the office. They kind of, you know, we put them in online as well. Um, and then um, basically our... Um, Direct mail as well. And you can see our direct mail and also really kind of connecting with a customer in, in their homes and also digital. And then this is basically a great example of versatility. We have suiting here for men's as well, which is kind of, you know, again, lucky doing suiting, wow. And, and we were able to kind of like slowly kind of like, you know, add that in and it's an extension. It's beautiful. Um, and then in terms of collaborations, again, from a brand perspective we've always had um licensing partners so basically all the music kind of like um uh, graphics that we have are all licensed and i think that we're able to kind of work on so many different kind of relevant um licensing partners like you know rolling stones and then also uh uh Most recently, we had basically Conifer, who's this graffiti artist that we kind of collaborated with and actually had them paint the most beautiful leather jackets. Uh, This is basically an artist, again, um, that did amazing kind of art here. And then also Adam Nichols and then also Triumph, again, Pendleton. So really picking the right brands to kind of, you know, to present to the customer. They believe in us. We want to pick the right kind of uh, partners so that it really is um, synergistical with our own brand. And again, it's all about kind of creating the right right, uh, partnership. Um, this is what I was going to kind of finish with it's basically what did I learn from all of this um, and, and I think one of the biggest things that I felt like was huge was basically balancing the heritage of the history to um, evolution and I think that that delicate balance of you know Making sure that you protect the DNA of the brand, and at the same time, really knowing what to stretch, what to grow, and what to not do. So it's that kind of like you know idea of you know that balance of fast fashion versus kind of you know what is it that you want to kind of make sure you protect. And I think uh, um, if you don't evolve, you basically be stagnant. And I think that that's where some of the brands suffer. But if you evolve too fast, you might be chasing trends and you lose the sight of your own kind of identity. So that's something that is always uh, something that we always talk about, and we really need to be careful of in terms of that kind of balancing act. Um, the other piece as well is brand transformation and starting with your, you know, yourself. And what I mean by that is, um, in order for you to enter into a company, a brand project, whatever it may be, you've got to be able to be prepared to be open-minded. You can't go in there and go, I'm going to do this and that's it. I'm not going to learn because if you do that, if you have that mentality, you will never evolve and do the right thing for the brand. So I think that it's really important to be able to go in there and have an open mind to be able to transform the brand as well as transform yourself. Um, and then the other piece as well is um, continuing to grow and also evolving and striving for, for better. This is something for me that's, you know, huge. I think that um, you always want to, uh, my philosophy is you always want to be better than your last. So every project, and again, if we talk about four seasons, every single delivery, you always want that to be better and better and better. It's a vicious appetite, but, you know, I think that that's what kind of drives us. And I think that, you know, again, from a creative perspective, if you don't drive for better, that means you didn't learn and you're not learning from what you just did. Because, you you know, you don't want to copy and paste. That doesn't really feel good. That's how we kind of, you know, re-energize a team, and we're always kind of moving forward. Um, So it's always basically the next is always better. That's the kind of mental state that I'm in all the time. The next is always better. (laughs) And then um, uh, staying objective and also um, basically kind of being uh, the empathy aspect is really important. And the reason why I put that in is because um, I feel like... um, In order for you to work well uh, uh, as a team and also be able to kind of collaborate well, I think you have to stay objective. You have to be able to be, you know, if you're negotiating and talking to a certain kind of like, you know, uh, partner and you, 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 you have to understand their perspective. And you're, you always have to kind of, you know, when you understand their perspective, you understand your own perspective, then you can be objective and then you can make strong decisions. And it's not a, a, an emotional decision because you're sitting in di- design and you don't want this to change. So you've got to do what's right for the business. You've got to do what, what's right for the brand. And so, you know, that kind of idea of understanding each other is very important. Understanding each other's kind of you know, position as well, understanding and, uh, and building the right decisions. Um, and then key ab- advantage for lucky brand is basically talent and, uh, also hiring the great people. I think Carlos talked about this, um, is, you know, at the end of the day with any brand, it's not just the brand. You can have an amazing brand. If you don't have the right people growing the brand, it doesn't mean anything. And I think it's all about people that really drive the brand or, the, uh, or company. So I think talent and also having the right people in the company is the first and foremost best, you know, first step that you have to make. Um, and then, um, I wrote in here: um, never, you know, never stop learning, and also learn, unlearn, and relearn. And what I mean by that is, and I really believe in this, you know, every day when I walk in. I'm not just learning. Yes, I'm kind of, I'm at a position where I'm guiding the team, but I'm learning from them every day. I'm learning from my cross-functional kind of, you know, teams. I'm learning from, and even today, as we I was going through a tour, I've learned so much today. And it's that constant evolving. I'm really trying to, you know, listen and um, you learn and hopefully you unlearn because you feel like, oh my God, I don't know anything. And then you relearn again. So I think that philosophy to me has carried me through as well. So yeah, stay curious. That's how I see it. So. Thank you.